Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 42, and this week I spoke to Jess Mahaney of Moomoo. Jess is someone whose designs stood out to me immediately when I saw them online this year. Jess was a little surprised when I asked her to come onto the podcast. Her background and engagement with fiber is different to a lot of folks who've previously been on the podcast. What I love about Jess is the breadth of things that she brings to the table. A gumption and scrappiness that is inspiring, a willingness to get to work, and a deep interest in design, clothing, and getting dressed. Mumu as a concept for Jess has been around for a long time. She never envisioned being a designer at this time in her life, about seven years into raising a child. But as it struck her, she's followed it, and it feels in the flow, as she describes it. She talks about the parts of herself that she felt went missing when she became a full-time caretaker of her baby, and how dressing herself was a part of this. She sings the praises of linen, how it looks relaxed always, and we talk about the ways that women, especially women designers, are changing the narrative around dressing and who we dress for and how. She tells us about her fear of not having the right language for describing what she wants, not thinking of herself truly as a designer. We discuss what it means to follow your impulses, to make more things in the world, and the ethical quandaries that come up with that. Jess tells us what her ultimate vision is for Mumu. Spoiler, it's not just about clothing. Clothing is really just the vehicle. And what's on tap for her for these next couple of months. I am so excited to see where these next months and years take Jess and her business, and I'm excited for you to meet Jess this week, too. Thank you so much for listening. Listen on for our whole chat. There's no sponsor for this episode, but I wanted to take a moment to talk about Patreon which is the main funding source for the Close-Knit Podcast. I've noticed recently that it might not be super clear what Patreon is, which I get, it's a pretty recent model for funding. So I wanted to take a second to clarify. Patreon is a platform for creatives to connect with their audiences in a way that invites community support and engagement. Patrons are so important to me. My interest in doing this work has always been from a desire to connect with people. Patreon helps me do this in a way that feels sustainable. I don't necessarily want or need the close-knit podcast to have an enormous audience, just one that cares. An audience that wants to hear these conversations and engage more deeply. Right now, as this episode is set to air, there are 108 people supporting the Close Knit Podcast financially, and this feels huge to me. The Patreon has only been around for about eight months, and to have this kind of support feels incredibly gratifying. So this is my ask. If you have enjoyed any, or maybe even all, of the 42 episodes of the Close Knit Podcast, consider becoming a patron. 2019 feels ripe, and I have some exciting ideas that I really feel can come into life in the Patreon community, so I'm really looking forward to sharing those there. Right now, patrons get access to a monthly curated playlist, in case you've ever wondered what songs I'm dancing to, or you just need a playlist to keep you company at work. 
There's some discount codes for shops that I love and additional content in the form of pieces written by me and by others for the Patreon community. Your support is what enables this podcast to exist and what will help it exist long term. If you have questions about the Patreon, you want to know more about why I use it and how you can help, get in touch. You can email me at hello at closeknit.com.au. Yes, I haven't updated my domain since leaving Australia. Sorry, it's a low priority. Again, that's hello at closeknit, which is C-L-O-S-E-K-N-I-T dot com dot A-U. And don't forget the A-U. Thank you again for listening. And though to those who are already patrons, truly, from the bottom of my squishy, soft-boiled egg of a heart, thank you. of Close Knit, and I am here with Jess of Moomoo. Hi, Jess. Hi, Annie. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Back. <laughs> Back in our little closet. We're take two today. You were a little bit sick last time, so we're... Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, happy to. Um, so you were in... So we should preface this. You're in my closet. We're in Oakland, and... But this is not originally where you're from, right? Can you tell me your origin story? Um, my, oh, my birth story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was like a weirdly great, maybe not your whole birth story, but um, where are you from? <laughs> I was born in a hospital in Miami. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Miami, you grew up, grew up I grew there. up in Miami and mm-hmm. I moved to New York when I was 20 and I lived there for 10 years and I've been here about five years. So. Okay, cool. Can you tell me about that? Um, what prompted you to New York and all of that? Yeah. So, um... <laughs> the story always feels so long, but uh, I'll just go for it. I moved to New York when I was 20. I had been in sort of a beauty school dropout, uh, fashion art school dropout, and I ended up uh, managing a, a women's and children's clothing store in Miami mm-hmm. and um, and eventually ended up buying for the store. And so through that process, which was really cool... Um, I got to go to New York a few times a year to do the buying, mm-hmm. and um, while I was there, I met this really awesome stylist, and she had, you know, we just kind of connected, and she said, oh, if I ever had an opportunity to, like, move you here, you could be my assistant. That would be so cool. Yeah. And that seemed, like, really far-fetched at the time because she worked freelance for magazines and seems very unlikely that that would happen, but actually, but then it did. (laughs) And, um, she had an opportunity where there were, she met someone who was going to hire her as like the creative director of some big concept store. And she wanted to hire me as the associate. It's like her associate direct, um, buyer and, um, creative assistant. And so that's why I moved to New York. And Mm then, um, that that project felt like kind of unraveled really quickly because the guy who was a restaurateur that was investing in this project was embroiled in like an affair and it became like a big scandal because he was on like one of the first reality TV shows that existed at the time oh. and um 
And so he didn't want to be exposed, and so he had to pull the plug on the project. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> and so it was a whole to-do. And I, at the time, I was offered a salary, you know, I had a salary for the year that was set, and my dad at the time was like, you can't, I'm not going to support you in just, like, selling your car and changing your life and moving to New York if you don't get something in writing. And I thought that was super embarrassing. I didn't want to, like, have to ask for that. And, um, but I did. And as a result, I was the only person that walked away from that deal with anything to speak of. And so, yeah. So as a result, I realized, you know what, all I've really wanted to do is make clothes. Mm -hmm. And so I, and design clothes. And so I'm going to take like this next six or seven or eight months, whatever it was that I had, um, left, while getting a salary but not having any work, I'm gonna take this time and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a collection and I'm gonna try and show it. Um, so that was kind of my first stab at doing doing that. Yeah. Um, I didn't end up manufacturing. I didn't end up going into production. Yeah. Um, I had kind of done everything up until that point. I I my boyfriend at the time um, he's an, he was an illustrator. He's an artist, and he was very close friends with these two designers who were like the it boys mm. at the time, and kind of like you know whatever Vogue magazine, kind of that sort of whole thing. And so they were really supportive, and they hooked me up with like a factory in New York, and kind of um, gave me resources for fabric sourcing and all that. And I pulled a whole collection together. I had a model. I had a lookbook done. I the whole thing, all the sample collection done. I went and had meetings with like Barney's Co-op and Bloomingdale's, and it was a big deal. I got like two small orders from each of those places. Wow. And um, when it came time to production, I just felt really overwhelmed, and I just had this real sense that like I had kind of always been like a fly by the seat of my pants, sort of scrappy, resourceful, you know, I I kind of slid my way under the wire to get out of high school and couldn't really function in a classroom or make it through and make it in art school because I just wasn't, I wasn't like primed as a student. And Mm -hmm. I had conned my way into this job as a buyer. And then I had gotten this great job to come to New York. And now I had made this collection. And I just, when I got to that place, I realized that I needed more than just like my scrappy resourceful like fake it till you make it kind Mm -hmm. of a thing Mm -hmm. to take that that was a big leap to take with so few um true like inner resources to manage a business and skill and and know-how and um and so I just I knew enough at that moment to just be like this is like above what I can what I can do. And so I just called to quits on the whole thing and didn't go through with production, which I'm grateful I didn't. Um, and then I had gone like, so then what had moved me to New York was like fashion and I was working in fashion and, um, I was still doing some assisting with the stylist that I was working for. And I really didn't like being in fashion. Mm. Um, and so I had gone out on these different jobs. I had, I, I almost got a job as a market editor for Vogue magazine and had gone through all the steps of all the, you know, tiers of interviews that you have to go through before you can meet Anna Winter and had an, an interview with her. And it was terrifying and just like, just the tension in the office and the whole thing. And just, 
you know, they would, the assistants would call me early in the morning before I had another interview and be like, remember the outfit you wore on the second interview? Wear that today. And I'd just be like thinking in my head, what did I wear on the second? I had to, I had like five interviews in total to get to that, to get to her. Wow. So it just, the whole thing just like really like brought me to this place and then they offered me the job and they were like, it's $24,000 a year, but you're going to be on call 24 seven. And I was like, oh my God, God, no, that's not for me. No. So, but that was kind of, that was my meal ticket. That was how I got to New York. It was kind of all I had known. I didn't study anything in school. I was just kind of learning as I went. And Mm I had acquired some knowledge, you know, in the industry as a buyer, mm-hmm. as a stylist, um, getting a little, a tiny little peek into production. And so I had something to offer, mm. but um, I didn't know how I would like just, I didn't know how to make that, how to parlay that into something else. And I really didn't want to stay in the industry. So <clears throat> I just quit. And, um, and at that time I went to... This feels like I'm talking too much, but no, I'm just going to keep going. No, it's do it, do it. Um, <laughs> so then at that time, I I had been doing all this really deep work um, with a therapist and just like really deep therapy. And like I had had a really big spiritual awakening when I was 17 um, and I got sober at 18. And so it was, a lot had like happened in that time when I like suddenly was running a store and was like first year sober and then moved to New York. And it was like all these things had happened. And then I was like there in New York and the identity and the work that I had had up to that point, like no longer made sense. And my real passion was for the transformation that I was having as a person. Hmm. Meanwhile, like all my friends and the people that I had grown up with were still like totally partying. They were all in college and, and I was just living a really different life. I was having like a super like spiritual renaissance and just like psychological transformation and also battling like really deep crippling depression, which I didn't totally know at the time. Mm. It kind of continued to reveal itself as my healing went along over the years. But anyways, so much of my energy was was going to like managing how hard it was to be me (laughs) and how fascinated I was with my own process Mm -hmm. and just like the human condition and my human condition that I felt like this is what I want to do. And so the work that I had been studying up until that point was this woman, um, Debbie Ford, uh, her first book was called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Mm-hmm. And so her work was all about like embracing the human shadow and mm-hmm. that when we reclaim the parts of us that we deny or repress um, or don't even know, you know, just project onto others, like we're just totally unawares of um, those parts of us all have gifts and that when we reclaim those parts of us, we can be whole again. You know, mm-hmm. we get, we get, we get to reclaim all these other beautiful, amazing parts of us. And so I had been doing her work for years. And around this time, she had opened up like um, an institute so that she could train therapists and, and other like mental health practitioners to get certified in this particular brand of work. Mm. Um, and then she opened it up to like anybody who wanted to get the certification. You didn't have to be a therapist. So then that's what I did. I went mm-hmm. to school to do that. And mm-hmm. I 
kind of just, you know, I started writing. I, I took some like writing workshops and I started dancing again, which I had done for years. So I, I kind of then like just went through this period of like having a creative resurgence and just doing all the creative things that I love to do. I, I acted in a few, um, plays mm-hmm. and, and was just doing all of this deep work meanwhile. And so years and years had gone by and I ended up becoming a coach and I was in private practice and I worked with people one-on-one and it was great. I loved working with people like that and just being in that like really deep realm feels really juicy and powerful to me. Um, and then I had my daughter. (laughs) And so after I had my daughter, I stopped working and I was home with her pretty much from the end of my pregnancy until very recently. And she's almost seven. So it's been many years that I've been home and doing that. And just like in the cocoon, um, I had kind of over the years, actually I had one, there was one other moment somewhere in that trajectory where I had another opportunity to design Mm. with like a very well-known, um, kind of hip, uh, store in New York that was doing their own collection as well as like the shop where they had curated other, um, small designers and whatnot. Um, and he, at some point in our process, he had made a pass at me and I denied him. And then that was it. He just totally cut me out of the whole thing. And I saw my designs like come out in the collection. It was just, I didn't have like this, I didn't have like the self-worth or like the skill to address it. So I just never did. And it just like remained this really painful thing that happened. Mm. And like one of many ways that I felt I've been totally like, you know, um, I don't know, violated feels like a strong word, but violated, you know, and, and kind of stepped on by a man. (laughs) And, um, and so that just went away, but I always knew that, um, that, that vision that I had had for that collection, which so much of Moo are like, even some of the pieces exactly as they are, are designs that were in that collection. Wow. <laughs> like they've just stayed with me. And it was almost like, huh. he kind of went forward with the collection and some pieces of mine were there and others, they, you know, his team did other things. And, but for me, the collection never, I never gave birth to it. So it was kind of always has been there and it's lingered. And I, and, and I've like imagined it in lots of different iterations. Like one idea was that it would be like all washable silk. And the other idea was that it would be all linen. And, and so I've been carrying it for a long time and I did not think that it was going to just like it was just going to pop out like this. <laughs> um, I thought that I would be 50 when I started designing again. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. The juice kind of came, and I've just been following the inspiration. Um, even though it, t- it doesn't totally make sense, just in terms of my, like, post-mother, postpartum kind of identity crisis. <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't totally add up. It doesn't totally make sense. I thought that I would kind of move back into the some version of the work I was doing before. Um, and also I've been writing all these years too. Mm. And I share a little bit of what I write, but I'm working on like, I've been working on like larger scale pieces, Mm. um, manuscripts for years. And so I thought maybe like my writing would kind of come to be, but 
um, Mumu just, it came and I just have been following that and trusting that process yeah. and it has been very in the flow and, um, yeah, it's just kind of, I've just been kind of answering the call, but it's kind of done itself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me, I guess, I guess I know you're saying there wasn't exactly like a point or something where you were like, now I'm doing Mumu. But can you tell me what that's kind of looked like if you were just to reflect on the last like six or eight months or however long? It doesn't yeah. feel like it's been, or it doesn't seem like from the outside it's been that long yeah. since the like, not inception because obviously you've yeah. been carrying this for a long time, but Well, I've been working production. on like Mumu yeah. for like two years. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, it first began as me being like, I just want to make some things for myself. Yeah. And I don't have the technical skill as a pattern maker or a seamstress, and I'm kind of outgrown for probably a lot of reasons, but time and energy probably being like the main ones. Yeah. I've just sort of outgrown wearing whole outfits put together by safety pins, which I used to do. <laughs> um, I would yeah. just buy big pieces of fabric and cut them into shapes and then kind of like glue them together. and. Wow. Um, but I've sort of outgrown that. And so I just decided like I was going to find like a student or something, someone yeah. local who could maybe put some of my ideas to the test. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with, um, a woman for a few months and kind of got some basic ideas out there. Actually the apron jumpers, like the first one that I had worked on with her. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and in my mind, I mean, when I see it now, I'm like, oh, it's so obvious, the elastic in the back, like the construction of it makes a lot of sense. But when I was imagining it in my mind, it was like a real engineering problem. Yeah. Like I couldn't figure out how it was going to stand up and like how it was, it was going to be constructed in a way that would make sense on a body. Right. Um, I just kind of imagined it like in a one dimensional way mm -hmm. and, um, and so she really helped me, like working with her really helped me kind of make sense of it, just putting the idea into action. Mm. And I had been feeling really intimidated by working with a pattern maker because I don't see myself as a designer. Uh -huh. So um, so I maybe like wasn't sure I would have like the proper language or I wouldn't right. be able to communicate in that language. Right. Um, so that's kind of part of the reason why I found a student because I felt like a little like less pressure or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it just kind of started to come together and just like putting the idea into action and kind of getting my feet wet in that way started to make sense of it. So I, so it's been two years since that point. Mm. And then slowly it just started like, then I was like finding myself ordering lots of fabric mm. and like hoarding fabric is something I've always done. Like even when I wasn't doing any designing over the years mm. I just like have like I yeah, yeah. just like I want to touch fabric <laughs> exactly I, people can't see us right now but I know like we need to just take <laughs> a picture or something hands. yeah like like rubbing your fingers together exactly yeah. like rubbing your hands mm -hmm. on good fabric mm -hmm. and like it's just yeah I've I just ha always had that thing where like I just look at I just love going into a fabric store and like seeing just all the fabric. I just, it's nothing but potential. It's just like, mm. it's overwhelming. Like mm. I just want to cry and I just feel overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And so I've never, I've always had that. And so mm. I, I found myself now really feeling like licensed to hoard fabric. And then I was getting all this fabric and it just, 
and then it just puts you know it was going and yeah. like friends of mine were like oh you're totally gonna start a line and I was like no I'm not starting a business oh. and, um I had a lot of like blocks about starting a business and I didn't see myself as a businesswoman right. and um so yeah, it's been like it's been just a process, but it's kind of been a process that I've just continued to like show up to, like the next little challenge or the next like little internal roadblock, being like, okay, I could figure this part out. Okay, I can figure this part out, and then it just kind of became. Yeah. And now I'm like, and then once it really took shape, and I've like ordered like tags and made a logo and really like made it into something real then I really was like what am I doing yeah you know am I I guess I have a clothing line now mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm still like working with what I think about that but I'm yeah. but it's happening which to me is really like it's an interesting place to be and in a way I recommend it because it's really like it's not an idea I had it's mm. not like I thought I'm gonna be this mm. you know it's like I just followed my impulses and now here I am so that's that's really that feels really interesting and I'm happy to kind of continue to watch Mumu become whatever it's gonna become because it kind of feels like it has a life of its own yeah well and it sounds like a lot of the the things you've done mm. over your life have been like you kind of gut checking like yeah how does this feel and then kind of following that yeah I'm very process oriented yeah. and yeah. <clears throat> I think that's what I like about fiber arts in general mm -hmm. you know it's like it's it's about process yeah and and um like mistakes are kind of woven into it and that's part of it yeah and it's part of the beauty of it and um, it's why I like linen. Yeah. You know, it's this complicated, hard to make fiber that's really strong and, and inherently imperfect. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that is how I've kind of, that is kind of my MO, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of landed on linen because you had mentioned before that it was like maybe going to be out of silk or something but yeah well I had had like a long time ago like in my 20s when I thought about it I, I had this idea of a, of a collection of washable silk that yeah. you could like just wash in a sink and then hang to, and it would dry really quickly and it would be like a travel collection uh -huh. I might still do that sometime yeah um but yeah linen has always I've always loved linen yeah I've always really loved linen it's it, it really makes me want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> it feels like I feel passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, uh, I put on these pants, these like tiger owl uh -huh. fisherman pants. Um, and when I got them, I was like, this, this weight of linen is not something that is like easy to come by or I yeah, haven't. This is like a, this is more of like a midweight. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like if I walk into a fabric store or something like that's the kind of linen mm -hmm. that I'm feeling. And it's so infrequent that you get to feel this kind of like the, the fabric just doesn't have this heft yeah. to it, this heft behind it, but it's still, even though it is like a heavier weight fiber, it's still so drapey and mm -hmm. wobbly and all of these things that like, yeah. It's like really yeah. nerding out on it, being like, yeah. I just can't believe the drape is so good, but it's so like, yeah, 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 so strong it and dense. It kind of stands up on its own, yeah. but it also flows. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of metaphor in linen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There really, really is. Yeah. I um, I want to hear more about um, 
your daughter and the fact that she's in school now, right? Mm -hmm. And she's learning to knit in school. Is that (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear more about that and what you're, how that's making you feel and what you want to do with that. Well, I have tried to learn how to knit um, many times over the years and I love it. It Mm. feels so natural. I love knitting. Mm. And then I, I always have a drop off point where I drop stitches and then I try and keep going, but I can tell it's really not working. And then I think like, oh, I'm gonna find someone who knows how to knit and they're gonna help me recover. And then I can never get to the recovery soon enough. And then (laughs) I I just totally fall off the bandwagon. And, um, And so that's happened to me a lot of times over the years, but now she's learning how to knit and she just retaught me how to cast on, which is amazing and and so now I feel like I have an in-house guide, and yeah. so I feel ready to pick it up again because I know that if I get stuck, I can go to her or I can go to her handwork teacher. Yeah. Um, she's actually in the aftercare program right now in her handwork oh, circle. So that's cool. Yeah, so twice a week after school, she has like an extra handwork class, cool. and it's really cool. Cool. Yeah. I feel like, too, I don't know anything about parenting, but I think... It seems really special to have something that, like, your kid knows more about than you do that they're teaching you about. Yeah. She loves that. That seems cool. Because it's like, you know, you're always the one being like, this is how you do this. And these are, you know, you kind of make the rules. And instead it's like, no, she gets to make the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, um, she's a really scary teacher. She she yells at me and she gets really frustrated when I'm not understanding it. And she wants to just grab it out of my hand and show me herself and won't let me, like, I have to really fight for myself. Like, I'm going to learn it better if you let me try with my own hands. Yeah. Um, But. But it is, I feel like it's a really empowering thing for her and yeah. it makes her feel really good, you know, <laughs> to be like the one in charge. Her and, little teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. She has like a really low, um, th- like she sees that I'm not doing it right and she mm. just has a really low threshold for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but she's amazing. She's an amazing teacher too. I mean, she she really knows what she's doing and she totally workshopped what I was doing wrong the other day. Um, by watching me do it and was like, I, I, I see what's happening here. And she backed me up oh. and figured it out. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. That's really it's cool. Pretty cool. I feel like for kids, wow. it's really hard. Um, I feel like Veda struggles with this all the time that, um, especially as an only child, like she lives in a grown up world mm. and as a baby, it's funny because she like always wanted to be up at eye level. She was like never a baby that could just like hang in a bouncer or like be sitting in the car seat while like moms were having tea or at brunch, you know, she always wanted to be like right up at eye level with everyone. Mm. And, and now I feel like what's so hard is that she is an only child and lives in this adult world and we have all the power, Mm. all the power. She wakes up sometimes in the middle of the night and Mark and I will be like sitting in bed eating cereal and watching the office. And she's like, what? You know, (laughs) this is what you do when I'm sleeping. (laughs) That's not fair. You get to eat cereal and watch videos. You know, it's like two things that she doesn't, that are not like regular things Mm -hmm. that she gets to do. And, and so she has this idea that like, we have all this power, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. And she is constantly being like, you know, 
shepherded, you know, (laughs) don't go here. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Do it this way. You know, stop. (laughs) Don't. No. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, we're really aware of that. So we really try and give opportunity for her to, to have a different experience. And, but I think it's really empowering when she can teach me something. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Oh, I want to know about what the period between kind of uh, getting pregnant and like having Veda and um, leaving work that you were doing or like employed work that you were doing, um, what that was kind of like for you and whether you saw bits of Moo coming up during that time and bits of your, I mean, I know you were writing during, you've been writing during this whole time, but um, just what that period has been like for you. Yeah, well, in like a very practical way, um, Mumu kind of came forward at the time that it did because I felt like I I was, well, I was missing so much of myself Mm. in the time where I was just in this bubble of caretaking and with a very high need baby. Mm. And, um, so, you know, I was going through what a lot of moms go through, which is just feeling like, who am I? What am I? Mm -hmm. Where am I? You know? Um, but part of that was that, um, I really like couldn't figure out how to dress myself Mm. after she was born. Yeah. Um, my body was really different. I was nursing round the clock. So everything I wore had to be, you know, easy access, um, to my boobs and, and, um, and at the time we were in New York and it was cold and just... Mm. It just felt, I felt, it felt complicated. And so I couldn't really, I didn't really dress like myself anymore either. And Mm. that's, that in addition to so many other things that fell away, just felt hard, weird. You know, I felt, I didn't feel myself and, and like a part of you dies when you have a baby Mm. and a new part of you is born with that child. And so it was just kind of like in that like shedding of skin and kind of trying to figure out like how I wanted to clothe myself in this new life where I was Mm. spending a lot of time sitting in sandboxes and laying on floors and cleaning and cooking and crawling around and wearing jeans all the time, like didn't seem as practical. And you know, it just, so it just was like born out of a need of Mm. like, I want to be wearing something that feels like pajamas, but looks a lot better. And where the like waists are made of elastic (laughs) and the tops are like loose and easy access. And I'm not like worrying or feeling bunched up or like, I don't feel like my clothes are wearing me Mm. and I don't feel like I'm trying to look hip or something. I just can and I feel like linen, like kind of like you were saying about the midweight linen that, of your pants, it's like linen has this way of like draping, but also kind of holding itself up. Yeah. And I think in that it's very elegant and really chic and like effortless. And you just look like you're, you just look like, like you're relaxed, even if you're not, yeah. you know, it just <laughs> has a way of making you look really relaxed. And, um, yeah. and so it just, yeah, it was just kind of after having beta, it was sort of born out of like my need and like my desire of like, who am I and how do I want to dress and like what mm. suits me now? Mm. And so Mumu is not that different from how I was dressing before. It's just kind of like bringing to life something that 
felt like it was missing in my wardrobe mm-hmm. and in the marketplace. Like I wasn't finding yeah. a lot of what I was wanting. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because of the like sustainable fashion bubble that I very much sit inside, but I feel like this is a bigger part of the conversation now of like making clothes that are more thoughtful for parents like Mm -hmm. and um and it's part of the I don't know if you follow like slow fashion October Mm -mm. which is a um Karen Templer who runs Fringe Supply Co Fringe Association um runs this thing she's doing it for like three years maybe now where like every October she like asks a series of questions and prompts and sort of discussion points and one of the ones that's come up is about like uh, holes in your wardrobe can you identify like mm. gaps of like what's working and what's not and what mm-hmm. you need more of and a few people have been posting specifically about either who are pregnant right now mm. or who've just given birth or mm-hmm. recently given birth and are in this stage of like well nothing really fits my body anymore mm-hmm. or the type of clothes that I used to feel good and I no longer do or they mm-hmm. just don't fit in the way that they used to mm-hmm. or other people being like I actually only needed these really specific three or four items of like these jeans that had like an elastic, like a, you know, mm-hmm. a big pregnancy band right. or something and everything else surprised, like more to my surprise worked out. Mm-hmm. And then I've noticed a lot too with like, um, designers, like women designers, especially mother designers, like designing in this way. That's like, yeah, I need to be able to just like whip a boob out. So mm-hmm. I put, I put, um, buttons here or right. I, you know, made this thing that could be really easy for you to access from different ways mm-hmm. and different sides and it's something that like even as a non-parent I feel happy to see is happening just Mm -hmm. because it's like this I like the idea that like our garments can change with our bodies as we change Mm -hmm. and like to have an elastic waistband Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though it's elastic means that you have this level of comfort and ease that you sometimes don't with like tight pants that button like Mm -hmm. part of why I end up wearing not jeans or just pants that have an elastic waist is because I need to be able to cycle and I need to be Mm. able to eat a whole meal and get on my bicycle afterwards and like feel comfortable still and sit in all these many positions or Mm. like I'm not just standing straight up Mm -hmm. like trying to look beautiful (laughs) all day yeah yeah I'm like very much need my clothes to work in the ways that I work which is like very mobile I'm just like walking and cycling a lot yeah I mean as you're saying that it makes me wonder too like Mm. it's kind of like in the zeitgeist you know like now of just like this movement of women like really breaking free from all these different from patriarchy (laughs) and so it's like the idea of like I can think of many many years of my life up until not that long ago you Mm. know where I dressed as a mannequin almost Mm. it was like what looked good Mm -hmm. and not about always what felt good yeah and now I feel like like there's that saying of like um oh i just read it i just read it on a bumper sticker and i was like whoa that's really like 1992 it said something like nothing tastes as good as skinny feels oh god (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i just thought like whoa and in my mind i just immediately reframed it to nothing looks as good or what was it it's like nothing looks as good as being comfortable essentially, you know, (laughs) and I, and truly mean that, like, you know, I worked as, um, a cocktail waitress for a period of time in my twenties and, 
um, as like a sober nerd, Mm. you know, that wasn't like my personal scene. So it was like a real anthropological experiment to be in there and to just like see the scene of like people spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on like bottle service and, Mm. and the women coming in, like it would be like 12 degrees outside and women would come in in like the tiniest dresses teetering along in the highest heels and they just don't look as sexy as maybe they think they do because it doesn't look sexy to be so awkward and uncomfortable so uncomfortable yeah you know and and it just feel like you know you do you but yeah also my you know my frank opinion is that like women look so beautiful when they're really comfortable yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know because that's like where your inner radiance can come out yeah and so yeah just like thinking of like wearing clothes that are not comfortable um and just essentially being a mannequin like that feels like a break like me that maybe does feel like I wasn't on I don't know if how long Instagram's been around but I'm more recent to Instagram Mm -hmm. so it may be that there was this whole world like I really feel in some ways like I've kind of like just emerged from a bunker like I've been living Uh underground for six years but So maybe all of this stuff has already been, you know, <laughs> very much happening, but it feels new-ish, you yeah. know, Yeah. that that women are, like, designing for comfort and, like, in mm-hmm. this very utilitarian way, but that's beautiful mm-hmm. and is, like, allowing, you know, just our natural beauty to shine on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess, too, it's just, like, access to more... We have so much access to all of the people in the world. So maybe we have mm-hmm. access to even more like smaller designers that wouldn't have right. otherwise existed were it yeah. not for social media and smaller platforms enabling right. people to do that. So maybe yeah. these people have existed for years and years and years. Right. We just like didn't know about them because right. the internet wasn't as big as it is now or That's not right. as connective as it is now or something. Yeah. And yeah. and it's like, I mean, <clears throat> I'm in the same bubble as you of like, yeah. you know, all these ethical fashion movements and whatever, but on Instagram, but, um, it feels like there's, you know, the internet is a very big place, but now it feels like there are these like really niche, like these ways of like getting into these really niche kind of like pods, maybe like kind of what chat rooms were like in the nineties, I don't know, you know, but it's like (laughs) just finding like some, like this really tight bubble. Yeah. Um, like this uh, chat room essentially is yeah. what it is. It's like, yeah. it's a place where people are in a dialogue yeah. about something really particular. Yeah. Whoa. Instagram is kind of like a um, pictorial chat room. <laughs> <Yeah>. 90s chat room. <laughs> it's just driven by hashtags and whoa. Right. So, and it's organized. Yeah. It's like organized by all of those things. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting to think about. Yeah. What do you think is next? Or I guess what is like literally next mm. for you with Lumu? Are you cuz you're in the middle of the next season, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so ne- right I just dropped everything off at the dye house. Oh my god. Yeah, so new colors are coming for fall and I um wow. I'm going to be at West Coast Craft in November. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's cool and um that's kind of what's literally next, yeah. but in in a bigger way, I'm I'm starting to kind of think bigger. I I think I've been feeling with Mumu as it's just kind of like I'm it's as a, much of a surprise to me as to anybody in terms mm-hmm. of like what's next. So I feel like, but I feel like I've really been questioning that myself in a bigger way. Just, um, 
like how do I make a bigger impact Mm. in a way that feels meaningful and just like making more things on the earth feels complicated as an idea to me totally yep um and that was like part of hesitation in terms of moving forward with even starting Moomoo was just like do I want to make more stuff on the planet yeah um that said I am making more stuff on the planet um and so my next question for myself is like how can I hold a bigger vision for how I'm doing that in a way that I feel really inspired and happy about? And for me, I think that is kind of bringing everything under one roof. Mm. Um, just for like scale in terms of like my, my vision for that, I'm still working from home. So like my Mm. office is at my kitchen table. My rack is in my guest room. I have boxes of inventory in my living room. Yeah. And I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks I transition into moving into a studio space. Mm. Um, but, um, so I'm just sharing that like for scale in terms of like, I'm literally just taking like the tiniest baby step into, just getting out of my house and, yeah. and feeling like this is more of a real business. Yeah. Um, but what I really would love to have is for to have everything under one roof and mm-hmm. to have my own pattern makers and to have my own sewers. And I long for that for a lot of reasons. I mean, on a purely selfish level, I feel like it would be a much more efficient way to work and it would be fun to work in a more collaborative way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a in a way that actually I feel much more inspired by it's that I want to have my own little economy and I want to support people who have amazing skills. Um, yeah. I feel like when you look at you know I don't I manufacture right here in the Mission District in San Francisco, so mm. it's not a sweatshop by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah. when you look at most factories where things are manufactured, even when they're ethical factories, there there are places where you find a lot of immigrant working Mm -hmm. and and I just feel like I know so many people who are great sewers and who love to sew Mm. and for some reason that's not um it's not like a hip trade and I don't know why that is if Mm. that's if that has a financial if there's a financial reason why that is because maybe it doesn't pay as much as another business um but I would love to rev- I, I would love to revive the trade. Mm. Like you know, why should women who have this skill like not be able to really put it to work mm. in a way that where they're doing meaningful work? And I you know, and I think part of it is that at a factory like even where I manufacture, it's kind of an assembly line. Like yeah. there's, you know, one woman who zips up the pants and the other woman who does the other parts of the pattern and and then it kind of all comes together. But ideally there would be one person making each thing. Yeah. And you know, everything I've done with Mumu, and I think I said this to you at another time, but like everything I've done with Mumu, I've been really intentional about and if I speak to a button manu- button manufacturer on the phone and I don't like the vibe, I just go and find another button manufacturer because mm-hmm. I want every part of Moomoo to feel like it has good juju. Like it's I'm sending my love like out to every single person that I ship something off to and I want every piece and component to like have that good feeling. And um, so in a way, I feel like if I had 
people working for me, like under one roof for Moo Moo, mm-hmm. under one roof, you know, that person would be making the garment from start to finish. And yeah. that feels really meaningful, Yeah, you know, because essentially it's all handmade. People are making it with their hands, you yeah. know, like with a sewing machine, but it's, yeah. it's made by hand. But I feel like when a person is making a garment from start to finish, then you're really then it's really handmade. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like heart made. Mm. It's made by one person who really took the time to put to construct a garment and they learned more about their craft in doing so. Yeah. And they got the satisfaction of creating something for someone else. Mm-hmm. And I want to create a work environment like that mm-hmm. where people are working together to put something to put things together for for other people mm-hmm. to enjoy. And so my, my big vision, my dream is to have like a sewing collective and maybe it, they just work for Moo Moo or maybe we subcontract out to other small designers who are looking for an ethical way to manufacture. But mm-hmm. that's my kind of big dream is that, yeah. is that we would have just like a beautiful work environment with a healthy work culture and mm-hmm. um, people that were doing a craft that they loved and continuing to like practice their craft every day and to work amongst other people who are excited about their craft and ultimately like a happy factory of elves who want to put things together for other people to enjoy which (laughs) is like the point so yeah it's like I'm making more stuff on the planet but I'm making stuff that people need yeah in a sense you know and um and I'm doing it in a way that feels like love and that feels important you know, and yeah. to me, and it feels like an important thing to put out into the, onto the earth. Yeah. And, um, so that's my ultimate vision for Mumu. Cool. So, yeah. yeah. So now I'm slowly just moving out of my house into a studio space and then we'll each, you know, the next progressions will come yeah. from there. But yeah, yeah, that's the ultimate vision you know when I think about fiber arts I always think about permaculture it's mm. like they're not separate in my mind mm. I, and I don't even know if that I don't know if that maybe that is like a thing you mm. know where fiber arts and permaculture are one but in my mind they are and so when I think about creating a business you know right now I'm just starting out and I'm just doing what I'm doing and I'm using the resources that I have at hand and all of that mm. And putting all the good intention into what I'm doing. But the bigger vision for me is like a permaculture vision where it's like I'm sourcing fabric from a healthy environment that has benefited everybody that has been involved in that. Mm -hmm. From the people who planted the seeds to the people who milled them to the people who wove that fabric to the people who sold it to me Mm. and then having all the people that work for me in sewing or pattern making or whatever else, whatever other, whatever other ways that people are contributing to Moomoo, um, that it's a healthy organism that feeds off of the good work that it's doing Mm. and the good work of other people that other people have put into it and then it can grow something beautiful and then offer that out and that it can just be a circle that goes around and around like that. Mm. So that's my vision for Mumu. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and it feels like even more formed than the last time we talked. It seems like you have more like 
you didn't have it in those words before. Yeah. It seems like maybe even in the last few weeks, there's been some yeah kind of firming up of that idea, which is really cool. Yeah. I saw a building and I just totally was like, it, it's not even here. It's in Los Angeles, but I yeah. saw a picture of a building and I was like, that's what I, that's what I want to do. Mm. I want to have a big building mm. with a lot of windows mm. and a ton of little sewing machines and a bunch of people working there and yeah. a healthy place, like a healthy culture. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's all we can hope for. <laughs> I don't know. As, a, as an employee, personally, that's like all I really want is a good work culture, like mm-hmm. something that I don't work that I don't hate (laughs) and that like ethically I feel no qualms about Mm. and healthy work culture and it's unfortunate that that's not the case for like a lot of folks and to be employed is like such a reality Mm -hmm. and it's a vulnerable place to be because you need something from someone else yes yeah and yeah I feel that if you are in a position to employ people it is like your duty yeah to take care of them yeah yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> if you want something, if you're getting something from them, like you yeah. have to give them more than a paycheck at the end of the week. Like that's just, that's just basic practical. That's a, that's the most basic practical part of the exchange. Yeah. You know, it's such a bigger exchange when you are yeah. taking, you're taking care of somebody, you're mm-hmm. like imbuing them every day and then sending them out into the world and back into their homes. And it's, it's a responsibility. Yeah. Totally. So. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, it's nice to hear someone say it like that. <laughs> um, yeah. I Sometimes I ask whether people have um, like other fiber artists or other people that they're, or brands or anything that they're like excited about or people that they want to share. Do you have mm-hmm. any, anybody you want to share? Um, well, I would say that Elizabeth Suzanne is like a oh, huge, yeah. she's like my She's like my, un, like, unbeknownst to her and, and probably in line with a bunch of other people. Like, she's like my mentor. Like, yeah. I just love reading interviews that she's given and talks that she's given. I think that what she's created is so rad and totally. so inspiring. And um, it's a real model for what I want to create for Moo And I'm so grateful to have mm. a model that I can look at. And even if I do things super differently, just having someone out there shining and doing something and in a way that she's in the way that she's doing it um and that it's built so organically it's just that's really inspiring it feels very attainable yeah so other than that I mean there are so many there's so many great people out there I feel like as of late mm. um I've really been making it my business to mind my own business mm. because it feels really <laughs> vulnerable like when you're putting designs out into the world and totally. then you see what other people are doing and you can really get into a state around it yeah um so yeah, I don't, I don't really yeah. know because I've really just been trying to stay in my own lane. That makes sense to me. I know <laughs> As, out of, out of self-preservation, you know? I think that makes sense because it's yeah. quite a um, dynamic landscape, I guess, That's in terms of, you know, just like, and slippery in a lot of ways because I think there's a lot of um, ownership around things, mm-hmm. around ideas and designs and it's hard because a lot of a lot of these things I have conversations with a lot of people about this just in my like spare time of about like what do we actually own what are actually our ideas and how many different ways can a basic linen Mm -hmm. thing be done 
um, by different designers. And I guess actually the thing that comes to mind is I was, my sister sent me a, uh, like a Ted podcast with Elizabeth mm. Gilbert. Oh yeah. And, um, she talks a lot about that. Like yeah. nothing is new. Yeah, exactly. And just that like ideas kind of have agency and mm. they will find their home in somebody mm. and you might not have been ready for that idea, mm-hmm. but somebody else might've been. It's so good. And it's, it makes me feel better about it. Cause it's kind of yeah. all of these things I think particularly in fiber arts, are so ancient. Mm. And we all are part of this sort of, we all consume a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. I think we all, especially because like Instagram suggests yeah, yeah. things to yeah. us, we end up finding similar inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to feel um, grabby about like yeah. what is ours and what is, what isn't. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, it just feels slippery to me to like, to get in this space of like, of, of immense ownership over things or, but I don't know. I've also never like tried to sell something that I designed. So, (laughs) well, yeah, it it is, it feels like a very delicate place Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, you know, there's this company called Beton Linen and they've become, Mm. do you know them? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they launched like two months before, I launched and I had was in the process of trying to cut down on which pieces I was going to go into production with. And I had like eight samples. Yeah. And one of my samples was very similar to their overalls, Uh, like so similar. Yeah. Eerily. Yeah. Um, but theirs was better. Mm. They had done this thing that that they like reinforced the sides with what looks like twill tape or something. It just felt like the construction was better and smarter and it looked better Mm. and but it was super similar and I just decided I was going to cut mine Mm. because I had been trying to cut down and I was really attached to them and my husband kept saying like I really feel like you should I feel feel like that's the piece to cut and I was like I don't think so and then I saw them launch and I had like a wave of anxiety and like sadness of like oh no somebody is doing the thing that I'm doing and I'm like so close to showing it but now you know but then I was just like but they did it, and then I, like, really looked at it. I was like, okay, it's okay. I'm going to look at this. Yeah. And I was like, they did it better, yeah. and I can just drop it yeah. because I have all these other designs that I feel really good about mm. and can just let it go. Mm. And I'm glad that I did Yeah. because they're really known for those overalls. Yes. And and they're great. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, they're and really cute. <laughs> they're really cute. They're really, really cute. They're yeah. really well-made, like, yeah. well-constructed. And... You know, yeah, so it feels like intellectual property is really tricky and yeah. and you know on um, to to talk about like the slippery slope, I feel like it's really easy to go from like inspired to anxious mm-hmm. about you know what people are making and who's yeah. doing what and who's known for what, and you know, so it's I feel like. You know, my kind of approach with it is just hold all of that really lightly. Mm. And if I feel like I get snagged by something, then I can just like be like, ooh, ooh and like just swerve right back into my own lane. Like yeah. it's not my business what they're doing. Let them do what they're doing and let me focus on what I'm doing. Because like what Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about is like that idea that there are no new ideas. Yeah. There's only new people Mm. doing those ideas. Like there's Mm. only one you, Mm. there's only one me. Exactly. And I've seen many books come and go that I'm like, ah, that's what I've been working on tirelessly. And I might never get there. And this idea is going to be like already done a million times, you know? Yeah. But the the truth is that nobody can do what you're going to do the way you're going to do it. And so you just have to like really 
stay focused on what you're doing and root for other people and what they're doing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I think that that's so healthy and not, not always the perspective that people have. And it's, it's super important to be able to stay in that. And it's part of, I think too, in the kind of fiber art scene, the like, like we, of all the places where women should be supporting women, mm. like this feels so strongly, like such a, such a strong place for us to do that. So mm -hmm. to have people articulate it in this way, you know, of like, that's, that I'm glad they did it and they did it better than I could. And I'm going to like go back to go back to my design drawing mm -hmm. board and keep working with what I've got here. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important because it's so easy to get so grabby and then it just becomes this kind of we're all in competition with each other mm -hmm. when that's not really the case. I wrote this recently on like one of my Instagram posts, but a meditation teacher of mine many years ago would always tell this story. Um, when she was talking about, like, in Buddhism, the five hindrances. Mm. I think it's, like, lust, greed, anger, whatever. And and so the story is, like, this, you know, or it's not a story, but what she would talk about is, like, this idea that, like, opportunity is scarce and it's just floating in the ethers. And then if it lands on you, that's less opportunity. Like, you've lessened my chances by mm. having that land on you. Mm. But that's not how it works, yeah. you know? And yeah. when we see it that way, it's a real hindrance to ourselves and to others because yeah. we're robbing others of the, the loving support that we have to offer. And we're, you know, hurting ourselves by thinking and just creating a really false reality. Like, it's not true that there's, you know, opportunity is, is infinite. Yeah. As anything, yeah. you know, and, and it's available to everybody. Yeah. And it's like Elizabeth Gilbert, what you were talking about, you know, it's like, it'll, your time will land on you when it's your time. Yeah. And I really believe that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. It's great to talk <laughs> to you. I'm glad that I could come back. I almost was just like, you know what, I was going to just leave it, but this was this these ideas were in me last the last time we met too yes. i was just really out i yeah. was really out of it and so i left feeling like i was really checked out and i'm glad that i reached out and that you yeah. were able to have me back yeah thanks so much for being here yeah thank you